Hey, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be with you this morning. Welcome to church. If you're new here, you're visiting, my name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here at Trinity on the east side, and it's wonderful to be with you. I hope we get to meet afterwards. Maybe we can find each other after the service. I'm going to read from the book of 2 Timothy, which is a little book at the end of your Bible. If you, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can turn there now. 2 Timothy 3, I'm going to read verses 14 through the first part of chapter 4. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, are grateful, as we just sang, that our lives are in your hands. Our lives are in your good hands. And so, Spirit, we ask today that you would come and meet us in this space, as it were, sort of like breathe over us, revive us, remind us of ultimate things, reorient us around what is most true, and then give us next steps to continue to walk in your paths. Help us, Lord. Be with us at this time in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We've been studying this letter for a few weeks. We're going to study it for one more week after today. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul, um, pretty famous Christian, uh, took the gospel to the world basically from, uh, you know, from Palestine where he came out of. Uh, he is in prison in Rome. It's the end of his life. He's going to be executed. It's the final letter. It's his final words. Um, which we'll actually look at next week, sort of his last words. But he's writing to his friend Timothy, who's a pastor in a church miles and miles away as a young guy, and he's discouraged. He's um, probably afraid a lot for his friend and his fear and confusion around this and why this is happening and why, if God is good, is his friend going through so much suffering and so much imminent danger? Why is this happening? And in the middle of his discouragement, Paul puts a letter uh, out into the Roman mail couriers, whatever, and, and makes it to his friend, um, and it comes to us today to bless us. And I think it's uh, maybe sometimes because of that, because of the particulars of this letter, because it's written from one person to another, because it's about a specific situation that the uh, the recipient is going through, we can kind of start to see, like, this doesn't really have much to do with me, maybe. I mean, this is written to a, uh, a sounds like a full-time minister, so it's like he's a clergy, so... You know, except for a couple of us in here, that doesn't strike incredibly close to home. And yet, I do think God has something for us. In fact, as we'll see, of course, later in this text, 
God's words, God's breath is all over this. Uh, he's inviting us into something, and, and uh, we'll see what that is together. Um, the first thing that we see in this text is Paul wants Timothy to um, continue in what you know, or return, rather, to what you know. So I, um, I remember uh, like getting to a place in my Christianity where I've been a Christian for a pretty long time. Like I think I was in fourth grade when I came, when I got baptized. And so I've been a Christian for like 30 years. And uh, super long, so old. And anyway, so I remember like getting to a place in my Christianity where I, I started to feel like I had sort of evolved beyond the Bible. And um, like the questions that I was dealing with were larger than what the Bible could answer. They were more real, more present. I know you're not supposed to admit that, such as a pastor. I just felt like I just didn't need it. Any, like, I felt like, got it, got it. I need something else. I need, I need some sort of deep spiritual work. I need mystics. I need whatever. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you feel that way too. Um, maybe you, you've reached places like that in your life. Um, today's message uh, to Timothy is, I think, meant to, to remind us that there is something utterly essential about what is the core thing that you know that you're returning to again and again. Um, so I was uh, having a conversation with a mentor not long ago, and I was sharing with this person some of the things uh, that were going on in my life at the time that were very difficult, and were kind of stirring up hopelessness in me around some stuff. Like, since it's like, uh, this isn't going to change anytime soon, uh, maybe ever. And that there was like a grief involved in that. And I was sharing all this, you know, my fear and confusion. I was sharing this with my mentor, and, and um, he was, because he's awesome, not shaming me for those feelings. Uh, he was listening and um, was asking questions and helping me understand a bit more of what was going on inside. And at one point I, I uh, said something that felt very, very like Christian to say. I was like, I, I know I just need to hold on to, I just need to hold on to what I know to be true, you know? And he said like immediately, and Matthew, what is that? What do you know? Like at the end of the day when all the, like, what do you know? What do you know to be true in your bones? What is the most true and essential thing about you? It was a perfect question. Like, a, it, was a, it was a bunker buster. It went right through and just went right to the core of it. Like, what am I actually holding on to right now? What is this core truth that I'm holding on to in this moment to endure through this struggle? Knowledge is really important in the Bible. It's, uh, it's a very common word in the Bible. And, and we live at a time, you and I, uh, thankfully, in which knowledge is more accessible and vaster than it's ever been before. And every one of us could right now pull a phone out and we could all give a different fact that none of us had ever heard. Now, that's incredible. That's the first, I mean, that is incredible. That's how much is at our disposal constantly. We just are flooded uh, with knowledge. We're flooded with it. And yet, like, what do you know, like, as the most important thing? Because I know it's possible to know a lot of things and to still have underneath it sort of a deep, gnawing question. A question that doesn't seem easily answered and certainly is not answered by the sort of knowledge that I find at my disposal uh, all around me. In the Old Testament, the prophets especially are letting the people of God know why they're going through so much suffering, why they're struggling the way they are. One of the ways the prophets describe it is you, you, have a, you have an issue with your knowledge. You have lost uh, what they call the knowledge of God, the knowledge of, of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's da'at Elohim. Um, da'at is the infinitive form of the Hebrew word yada, or as Jerry Seinfeld says, yada, 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 yada. It's, it's, uh, and, and the Hebrew word yada 
it, it's, 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 a, it's a strong word. It's, a, um, it's, a, it's an experiential word. It's a word that is not simply about like book smarts. Like I read an article and now I understand the Syrian refugee crisis. It's something far deeper than that. In fact, interestingly, the word da'at is also the Hebrew word for sweat. It's the idea of like something I've worked for, something I've experienced in my body. It's touched my whole person. Uh, in fact, in Genesis, it says right at the very beginning of your Bible, and Adam yadad Eve, he yadded her, and she conceived and bore. So like that's a kind of like special kind of knowledge. Like that's an experiential knowledge. That's not book smarts knowledge. That's something that that impacts the whole self and the whole form. And the prophets would say to the people of God, you find yourself in exile and far from God. You find yourself confused and alone. And it's because you have lost Da'at Elohim. You have forgotten God. You have forgotten the core, most essential things. And you filled yourself with knowledge of all sorts of other things, other gods and other ways of being and other loves and other lands. But you've lost the knowledge of God. In fact, Hosea uh, writes in chapter four, he says, my people are being destroyed for a lack of knowledge because they don't know the right things. Which is why just two chapters later, he charges the people. He says, come, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. We have to know the Lord. It's so important. What do you know in your bones? What is the core, most essential and fundamental thing about you? The prophet Isaiah, pretty famous prophet. He has a really famous season coming up. He's like the Christmas prophet. So we're going to talk about him a bunch soon. Isaiah was writing in chapter 11 in this, you know, we always sort of stop at the beginning of the chapter um, where it says a, a stump, a, 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 a something, a branch will come out of the stump of Jesse. And we're like, oh, there's Jesus. That's the end. But Isaiah goes on to describe the good end that this twig, this branch coming out of the stump of Jesse is, is intended for. He lets us know about the good thing that is on the way. And this is what he says. You all, we know this language, but the wolf shall live with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. That is a goat or a kid, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. In other words, like the power structures of the earth have been undone, and there's a, there's a flatness and an equality and a safety now. There's no predator and prey. Like We're all together in this. In fact, it goes on to say the cow and the bear will, will graze. That's interesting. Their young will lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And That's a very hilarious picture. And then the nursing child will play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand in the adder's den, which that's how I'll know I'm in heaven when I put my hand willingly in a, a den of snakes. I'll be like, I'm a new creation. I must be because there's got to be a God if anyone's willing to do that. So anyway, so all this incredible stuff is happening. And it says, and no one shall be hurt or destroy on my holy mountain. Why? Why? Because the earth will be full of the at Adonai, of the knowledge of God. We will know God the way that you know the sweat on your brow, the way that Adam knows Eve, the knowledge of God. You and I are living in a food desert for knowledge. We know, you know what food deserts are. Atlanta has a number of them. Places in which it's virtually impossible to find something nutritious to eat. Plenty of food options, all of them simple carbs, sweet, sugary, shallow, low in nutrition, not the sort of thing that encourages health or the body's natural defenses, the sort of things that actually uh, strip the body of, of its natural defenses, food deserts. We are living in a world, in a place, in a time in which we are surrounded by knowledge. We are surrounded by sh cheap, sugary, non-nutritious Stripping of our natural defenses knowledge. We live in a word of the Lord 
desert. We experience knowledge malnutrition as a people. What do you know? When something comes and knocks you off your horse, what do you know? How do you keep going? What's at your core? Paul says, we must return to what we know. And then he says, and I want you to place yourself downwind. He starts to talk about the scriptures. He says, go back to the scriptures. Now, we've talked about the Bible for three weeks in a row now. This must be getting old, right? I mean, here we are talking about it again. It's almost like it really matters that it keeps showing up. This idea, like, what am I feeding myself with? What am I placing myself in? What am I reminding myself of? Now, the reason I say downwind is because in the Greek, um, so lots of languages today. It's like seminary show-off day. I'm very sorry about that. Um, the reason I say downwind is because in verse 16, it says, for all scripture is, and the NRSV says, uh, inspired by God. And that word inspiration, that's a conf- confusing word, and it creates all sorts of petty theological arguments in which we fight over like what is authoritative and what is inspired mean and 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 the church has you know suffered i think because of that because the the greek word actually uh in a lot of your bibles may even say it the greek word is simply god breathed it's the idea that this thing came out of his lungs these ideas come from him they're places where his breath can be found and in the greek and in the hebrew and this is very cool the same word for breath is the word for spirit is the word for wind It's this idea that where God is moving, where there's life-giving movement, spiritual movement. Where do we find it, Paul says? We find it in the scriptures. God's breath is all over the scriptures. And so even though I know it can get tired, and there's so many things that pull at our time, right? There's so many things that feel important, and I know the Bible, it's important. There's lots of important things, though, like exercise is important, time with friends is important, and time outside is important, especially this time of year. I mean, it's easy in July to not go outside, but I mean, now it's time. It's important. It's important to spend time. It's important if you have kids to to cuddle up on the couch and watch a movie together. It's important to do these things. Lots of things are important, and they're constantly pulling at our time. And then there's all the other stuff that's constantly pulling at our time. Mark Sayers uh, is a pastor out in Australia, and he just, I thought this was great. He says, your attention is a commodity that is constantly being mined and targeted by people who are not acting in your best self-interest. And that's just something to remember, just like to rem- as you walk through. Your attention is a commodity that is being mined by people who are not acting in your be- best self-interest. And so you have all these things that are constantly pulling at you, constantly pulling you away. Paul says you've got to put yourself where God is breathing. If you find yourself on a still lake and the wind is not blowing and your sails are limp, he says if you want to find a place where the wind is blowing... It's not to say this is the only place the wind is blowing. It's not saying that. But it's a sure place where the wind is blowing. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we put ourselves downwind? How do we invite God uh, to speak? Well, first of all, I want to give you an encouraging word from Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was a mystic, a monk, a spiritual writer, and he says this. He says, one cannot begin to face the difficulty of a life of prayer and meditation unless one is, find, is first perfectly content to be a beginner. And to really experience himself, herself, as one who knows very little or nothing and has a desperate need to learn the bare rudiments. And those who think they, quote, know from the beginning will never, in fact, come to know anything. And we do not want to be beginners. But let us be convinced of the fact that we will never be anything else but beginners. 
And so as we talk about this, you know, it's easy for us to like sort of put ourselves in sort of a hierarchy or a stratus and go like, well, I've been doing this a long time. Or I've been, you know, we start to compare ourselves like, well, they have really active uh, life with God. They're, they're very impressive spiritual people. And, and Merton just says, you're, you're missing the whole point. There is, there is infinite knowledge of an infinite God that goes on forever and ever. And you and I are always, always in the very, very earliest fringes of knowledge of that endless God. And you will be forever, but we will continue to, you know, go further up and further in. So just be a beginner. Be a person who doesn't know way more than you do. Be a person who has to learn even the simple rudiments and not be ashamed of that. Not feel less than others. There is no hierarchy in this. We're all beginners. Every week I've tried to give you a little practice that I've used over the years that have helped to kind of put me downwind, as it were. Um, this week I want to talk just briefly about this, about meditation. Um, meditation is, um, meditation is setting the mind on a thing, essentially, and then letting it just sort of sit and dwell and live in you for a long time. And Christians have been doing meditation forever because the Jewish people did meditation before us and we learned it from, from them because the first Christians were all Jews. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my heroes and a uh, very famous uh, pastor in the 40s, had a seminary. He taught his students at his seminary how to do meditation, and they would take a single verse and they would meditate on it every single day of that week. It's pretty cool. That is a very different thing than me. Like, I'm an achiever. Like, I like to get stuff done. And one of the things I struggle with with reading the Bible is reading for completion. As though, like, the reason it exists is to say, I did it, checked 100%, signed my name at the bottom of the reading. Like, do I get credit now? Like, as though completion is the point of any of it. It's very hard for me. And so to spend an entire week on one verse, ooh, man, that sounds like a lot of work for me. But it's, it's what Bonhoeffer said. You have to do this if you want to get everything out of this. It's, it's so important. So I just want to give you some steps. We're just going to put it all on the screen at once, and you can just look at it, take a picture of it if you want, um, and, pr- and try this this week. Try this this week. First of all, we sit, we ask God to give us a desire and the grace to meet him. We just acknowledge with the fact that I'm telling you to do something that probably most of you don't want to do. That's okay. I don't want to do it lots of the time too. So we can just begin with that. I don't want to do this. So I ask God to give me the desire to want to do it. And then I ask for the grace to meet him in it. The second thing is I set aside a time. I put it on my calendar. Eugene Peterson, um, who we love a whole lot, used to just put time with God on his calendar. Because he says, if it's on the calendar, uh, the calendar is sacrosanct. Nobody questions the calendar. If somebody says, hey, can you come to my house? Or would you like to have breakfast? Or do you want to have a meeting at two? And you say, I'm sorry, I have an appointment already at that time. No one goes, well, what is it? Is it as important as me? No one asks that. Well, some, maybe one, couple, you may know some people. But those people have no boundaries. No one, no one really asks that question, right? We don't, we, we just know if someone says they can't. So he's like, put it on the calendar. And that's why, like, my phone reminds me to pray throughout the day. It's like, what is, what are the things that are reminding you or pulling you into this as a practice? Third, find a place and expect to meet God there. Dallas Willard, uh, who was known by his friends, uh, this is beautifully, as a person who, when he closed his eyes to pray, he literally believed that in that moment Jesus walked up and sat down across from him to, call, to talk with him. And just to have that, that vivid of an imagination. It's just so imaginative and so beautiful and so pure to just imagine that God is there, like you, almost like you walk in the room and he's already sitting there. He's already waiting for you. He wants to be with you. And find a space to do it in. Like this is probably not going to happen on the train. If you take the train, it's not going to happen probably ideally in traffic. Uh, it's, it needs to happen in a space that's somewhat contained. Again, your attention is a commodity. That is being constantly mined and targeted by people not acting in your best self-interest. And so if you have uh, distractions 
friends in your life, whether they be electronic or whether they be human, whatever they are, find a way to create some space uh, from some of those distractions. And there have been times in my life where the only place I could find quiet was the bathroom. Okay. And so that's just has to, that may be your thing. Like you just, that's, this is my prayer closet, I guess, you know, like I'll just hang out in here for a while because otherwise every other door is a door that little kids try to barge down. It's just, it's just recognizing that you need space. And, and Jesus says in Matthew 20 in Matthew chapter six, that when you pray, go and close the door. So find a space and close the door create space. Then finally pick a text. And again, you can just do this in whatever way you want, but find a verse, find a thing and sit with it for a while. I've been reading through the Bible in a year, but over the course of a reading, I'll come across something and I'll just kind of go and circle around that for a while. Ask some questions. Martin Luther gave his students a series of of questions. I think that's the sixth white man I've now quoted, but Martin Luther gave his... his, Sorry, uh, truly. So uh, he gave his students a set of uh, questions um, to ask, and, and they have the acronym TAX. It's not super memorable, but it's a little memorable. Teaching, adoration, confession, and supplication. And we just ask first, what is this teaching us? Two, how can I adore God for this? Three, what am I, what am I called to confess in light of this? And fifthly, supplication, asking God, show me how to respond to this. What do I do in response to this? Engage the imagination and the senses and be discouraged and just keep going. Uh, Merton says also, he says, we should not judge the values of our meditation by how we feel. A hard and apparently fruitless meditation may in fact be much more valuable than one that is easy, happy, enlightened, and apparently a big success. So I just come back to it again and again, and I put myself downwind and I work into myself the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Elohim, I work it into myself so that when a person asks me, when I experience difficulty, when I feel hardship, I know what I know. It's in me. It's in my bones. This is a, this is um, non-negotiable um, for me. If I don't do this, if I don't do this, there are there are so many other things that I will know more deeply than this. I was worshiping during the nine o'clock service and my phone vibrated, um, which it just isn't, the, aren't phones the greatest? I pull my phone out while I'm worshiping and it let me know what my screen time usage was, my daily average for screen time in the previous week. <laughs> I, I spend more time on my screen every day than I spend with the Lord. Every day. What do I know? What do you know? What is in your bones? What is at the core of you? What story are you living in? Finally, the third thing I want to say to, to you today is uh, put, put yourself in the fire, which that's, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But I was, um, this story just came to me at the end of the last service, and I just want to share it with you because um, it, I think uh, this is it. So have you read have you read The Silver Chair? Yeah, not not the band from the 90s, but the book by C.S. Lewis um, that he named after that band. <laughs> um, um, in The Silver Chair, it's one of the latest books of Narnia. And if you haven't read those yet, I don't know what to say. Like, you've, like you've really got to, you need to read these books. Everyone needs to read these books. Um, Anyway, the kids, 
and a few others are down in this underworld in a cave. It's very dark. It's very bleak. And there's a witch there. She's a queen. She's an enchantress. And one of the people who's in this party is, a, is what's called a, a marshwoggle. I think it's what it, a marshwoggle. His name is Puddle Glum. He's a wonky, sort of awkward person with webbed feet and a very strange way of talking. Anyway, Puddle Glum is down there, and these kids, and this prince, and then this queen. And it's very dark. And the longer that they're down there in the dark, the longer that they're away from the sun, the longer that they're away from the stars and the grass, the easier it is to forget that those things exist. And the witch begins to play this music, and there's this sort of, you know, incense in the, in the space. There's a fire going. And she just begins to just ask questions. What is, what is the sun? Well, the sun is up there. Where are you from, Narnia? Narnia, what's that? Oh, it's, it's, it's up there. Up there on, on top of the ceiling? How is, what is? And just begins to just deconstruct and slowly chip away at. And the longer they're down there and the music and the smell and the soothing... And they just begin to go, I don't, maybe there isn't a sun. Maybe I imagined it. No, 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 I remember Aslan. Aslan, what a funny name. What a silly name that is. What is Aslan? He's a lion. <laughs> What's a lion? There are no lions. No, he's a king. There's no king. And just begins to like, and, and finally as, I'm going to read this part because it's so good. Because Lewis is better than me. They're all beginning to question everything they think they know. And then Puddle Glum, as they're sinking into this state of oblivion, desperately gathering all of his strength, walks over to the fire, and then he did a very brave thing. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into the ashes of the flat hearth. He woke himself up. And then he said this. He begins to fight for his friends. He says, one word, ma'am, coming out of the fire, limping because of the pain. One word. All you have been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I am a chap who always likes to know the worst. And then I put the best face on it. So I won't deny what you've said, but there's one thing that has to be said. Maybe we have only dreamed these things up or made them up. All these things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Maybe we have. Well, then all I can say, if that is the case, then the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. And suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. And that's why I stand by the play world. And I'm on Aslan's side, even if there's no Aslan. I'm going to live like a Narnian as I can. Thanking, and so thanking you kindly for your supper. We are leaving your court and setting out into the dark to spend our lives looking for the overland. Not that our lives are very long, but we will find our way home to Narnia. Now, of course, the premise of the whole story is that there is a Narnia, but that often you and I find ourselves in a place where we begin to wonder if it is exists. What are you doing to wake yourself up? You and I are inundated with soothing, relaxing, deconstructing. It doesn't matter. You're wasting your time. And we need to be brave. 
we need to be defiant. We need to take our foot and we need to stick it in the fire and wake ourselves up so that we can fight for the people around us, which is why he goes naturally very clearly into, and then share the good news with everyone you meet. How do you become a person who does the work of an evangelist? You wake yourself up first. How do you become a person who can broker ultimate things to other people? It's you yourself have the ultimate things inside of you. And there's no substitute for this. There's no escaping the need for this. This is utterly essential. And if you're not fighting for this, if you're not fighting for yourself in this, you're losing in this. And I want you to win. I want us to win in this. This is so important. How am I ever going to have something deeply true and honest to say to my kids, to my friends, to my neighbors, to this city, if I do not have the knowledge of God deep within me? We must contend for it. We must work for it. There's no substitute. Why don't we stand up together? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity Indicator. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much. And God bless you. Have a great week.